0: Australia's trade stash with China has escalated sharply, with
1: savage new tariffs set to hit our wine industry hard. China's president has warned the new Biden administration not to start a new Cold War.
2: To build small circles or start a new Cold War will only push the world into division and even confrontation.
0: Since the rise to power of Xi Jinping in 2013, China has become more assertive politically and economically, frequently straining relations with its neighbours, including Australia. Governments across the globe are having to learn how to deal with an assertive and powerful China, determined to put its stamp on international affairs. Over the next two weeks, we're going to trace the diplomatic and economic transformation of China, from one of the poorest and most isolated nations on earth, to the powerhouse it is today. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. This week, the focus is diplomatic, specifically the 1972 US presidential visit to China, and the meeting between President Nixon and Chairman Mao.
2: The best commentary on the meeting in Peking came last night from President Nixon himself. There is no reason for us to be enemies. Neither of us seeks the territory of the other. Neither of us seeks domination over the other. Neither of us seeks to stretch out our hands and rule the world.
0: The significance of the 1972 visit can only be understood in relation to China's decades of international isolation. China for thousands of years had been the power in Asia. But that changed in the 19th century. Defeated by the European powers, China was humiliated and economically weak. Winston Lord was the US ambassador to China in the 1980s and between 1970 and 73 served in the State Department as the special assistant to the National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger.
2: For most of its history, several thousand years, China was number one, but for about a century, from the middle of the 18th, 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, they were humiliated and occupied by outside powers. Europe, of course, and British and Opium War, and also Japan in the 1930s. So the Chinese were suspicious of foreigners, having dominated once and now being invaded and humiliated by them, but this was less of a problem with the United States. We did not have the history that Britain or Japan had, for example. And so therefore, I think the Chinese attitudes were generally more benign to America than there were most other countries in which they had some suspicion.
1: Although the Americans were seen as part of the predatory Westerners, by the Chinese, and the Chinese suffered a lot in the 19th century and early 20th century, the Americans were seen as somehow a bit nicer than the others.
0: Margaret McMillan is professor of history at the University of Toronto, and the author of Nixon and Mao, the week that changed the world.
1: The American governments had pushed for an open door policy, which meant that no single power would take over China. And a lot of Chinese, as they began to think of ways in changing their government and changing their society, looked to the United States as a model. And so a young Mao Zedong, for example, was very impressed by Washington, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and looked at the American Revolution as, as something with hope. But any warmth
0: felt towards the United States evaporated in the years following World War II, as two groups battled for control of China, the Nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek and the Communists under Mao Zedong. Joe Renoir is a resident professor at the Hopkins Nanking Center, John Hopkins University.
3: In the years after the war, I think you could say there were several different dynamics. I mean, one is that Americans had to become accustomed to being something of a global power. That was something Americans were not used to. And the primary goal of Washington in China after 1945 was to have something of a stable, peaceful country that would probably have had some kind of coalition government between the existing nationalists. And the other force, which is, of course, the communists. Unfortunately for Washington, and perhaps unfortunately for many in China, that goal was overshadowed by a Cold War desire to support the one side, which is the nationalists. And so the more the United States supported the nationalists in the 1940s, the more that that meant once the communists came to power, of course, they were going to be not only an anti nationalist and anti capitalist group of people, they're going to be anti American as well. <laughs>
2: Everybody, 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 Let's go. chairman Mao Zedong on October the 1st, 1949, proclaiming the People's
3: Republic of China.
1: Well, I think most Americans, particularly those in government, backed the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai shek because they felt they were more likely to be democratic, they were going to revive China, they were going to make it a power again. And President Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president for much of the Second World War, believed in making China what he called one of the four policemen of the post-war world. He, he tried to prop up China, but that would be a China under the nationalists in Chiang Kai-shek. I think there were some Americans who saw the communists as less corrupt, more efficient, but they tended, those Americans tended to be on the left. And when the Chinese communists actually took over in 1949, a lot of Americans were spooked. And, of course, it was the beginning of the Cold War, and so the communist takeover in China was seen as something that was plotted and organized by Stalin and the Kremlin. And there was a very fearful reaction to the communist takeover, and the Americans decided to continue to recognize the government of Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists, even though it was now occupying the island of Taiwan, they continued to recognize that government as the real government of China, which, of course, they did up until the 1970s.
2: The war started 22 years ago when the American army under General MacArthur reached the Chinese border in Manchuria in late 1950, 300,000 Chinese communist volunteers crossed the Yalu
1: River and drove the Allies back. And then of course in 1950 the Korean War broke out and American ground troops were fighting there and the Chinese intervened and so China became an actual enemy in a military sense And for Americans, the Chinese communists were a dreadful threat. And the Americans tended to assume that the communist world was monolithic and therefore that everything was being directed by the Russians out of the Kremlin. And they were terrified that the rest of Asia might go communist. And for the Chinese communists, the United States was the great enemy. It had been the chief supporter of their enemy, the Chinese nationalists. The United States continued to promote this idea that the real government of China was the one that was sitting in Taiwan. And so for the Chinese communists, the United States was the great enemy. And so the two sides saw each other in these very stark terms, and there was virtually no contact. There was no diplomatic exchange. American citizens couldn't go to the People's Republic of China. If they did, they lost their passports. No Chinese from the People's Republic could come to the United States. There were indirect contacts because occasionally they had to talk about things, for example, about prisoners taken in the Korean War by either side. And so they would occasionally have contact through third parties in places like Warsaw in Poland, where both the Americans and the Chinese communists had embassies. But the contacts virtually didn't exist, and both sides had this very stark picture of the other as being deeply evil.
2: Before President Nixon took office in 1969 with Henry Kissinger as his national security advisor, there had been sporadic efforts by certain elements in the US, mostly Democrats, who felt that we should try to reach out and have a new relationship with China. But the overwhelming political opposition to this was there, both among the Congress and both parties. And so these efforts never really got anywhere. In China, there might have been some debates within the party about this, but again, publicly, no signs of really trying to reach out. So the situation was really quite frozen until Nixon came in in 1969. He had foreshadowed in an article in a magazine in the United States in 1967 that we ought to be in touch with China. Nobody expected it to be this dramatic, but one week after he ended office, a week after his inauguration, he sent a memo to Dr. Kissinger, his national security advisor, instructing him to try to get in touch with the Chinese and indicating that he wanted to try to establish a new relationship. Meanwhile, the Chinese on their side, although we didn't know it right away, were concerned about pressures from the Soviet Union to their north, and they were totally isolated in the Cultural Revolution. So there were some people within the Chinese side, again, we didn't know it at the time, who were at least thinking that they ought to reach out to the far barbarian, namely the United States, to balance off the near barbarian, the Soviet Union.
3: It's a very interesting thing that the leadership in both countries, and we're talking about you know Richard Nixon in America, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai in China, At roughly the same time, they have just about the same vision that China should not be isolated in the way it had been, and that a U.S.-China estrangement wasn't really good for both countries. When Nixon becomes president in 1969 and 70, and as you said, he takes Henry Kissinger on as his national security advisor, the two of them wanted to be seen as great statesmen, as creative geostrategists, people who are capable of bold diplomatic strokes. So in a sense, they have this pragmatic foreign policy realist perspective, And they brought with them a desire to show they're willing to transcend the dark years of the Cold War and open up to these leaders in other countries that had been, quote unquote, America's enemies for more than two decades, so Beijing and Moscow. Within about a year and a half of Nixon becoming president, he realized that this is an avenue to address not only perhaps getting out of the Vietnam War on good terms, but also using China as a regional balancer, as a way to balance Soviet power, creating leverage against the Soviet Union. And also, we cannot separate out Nixon, one of the great political figures of the era. So, of course, he wants to be reelected. And he sees a way to get reelected is by showing himself as the great statesman. Kissinger, meanwhile, is seeking legitimacy, prestige. You know, he wants to be the nation's top diplomat. He had never held public office. He was an academic. He was a professor. And so he has to, in some ways, make a, a case for himself as a great diplomat. For them, there was no real philosophical problem with dealing with governments in Beijing and Moscow. The question was, what can we get out of it and can we can we translate that into some real results?
0: So from the the Chinese perspective, what did the possibility of a relationship with America actually offer?
3: China was emerging from national isolation, the excesses of the cultural revolution. There's a power struggle in Beijing. To put it simply, the leadership was divided between the moderates, led by Zhou Enlai, who sought China having more openness to the outside world, including relations with the U.S., including relations with other Pacific states in the Western Pacific. And uh, the opposing faction led by Lin Biao, who favored a closer relationship with Moscow. So Mao tilted more toward Zhou Enlai's position. I think Mao was troubled somewhat by the excesses of the Cultural Revolution and by China's isolation. So he tilted toward Zhou Enlai's position of a somewhat more openness toward Not just the united states right ultimately would be japan australia new zealand and so on but in practical terms an opening with america could bring certain things to china it meant a stronger partner in his conflicts with the soviets and with india frankly that all the chinese leadership wanted advanced aviation and military technology that was a big obsession in the 1970s 80s and 90s we know now that he even expected perhaps the americans will bring advanced nuclear weapons and nuclear technology though that did not happen so So a variety of of both philosophical, practical, technical interests and the domestic political power struggles that always were going on in the People's Republic when Mao was alive.
0: So how did the process actually start? Because I mean, as you said, from 1949, there'd been virtually no contact between the two. So how does it begin? How do you start a conversation with a nation that is effectively an enemy?
1: That is the question, and that was the question, and it was a real problem because you didn't want to make an open overture. You know, no American president could say to China, come on, let's talk, because if the Chinese then responded by saying, you're a bloodsucking sucking capitalist, no way, or whatever, they, they tended to respond very rudely, then, of course, the American president would look like an idiot and the Chinese didn't want to be seen in the position of appearing to be supplicants to the United States. And there was also just a serious technical problem. How were they going to talk at all when they didn't have any channels of communication? And so it was like a very intricate courtship, sort of with marriage brokers getting involved. And so what happened, for example, is that the Chinese changed their language a bit. They stopped saying blood-sucking Wall Street capitalists or whatever, And they simply started referring to the United States. And Nixon dropped the term red China and simply started talking about China or the People's Republic of China. So they sent sort of rather subtle signals. But what they also did is they talked to powers they were both friendly with. And so they tried to talk through Romania. But the real channel ended up being Pakistan. Messages were carried, and they were literally messages. Neither side wanted to send a document. And so the Pakistan government would get something from China saying, look, let the Americans know that if they want to send someone here to talk, we wouldn't mind. And that message would be conveyed verbally to the Pakistan ambassador in Washington who would then go to the White House or to the State Department and say, "Um, I've got an interesting message for you, but it was all deniable. And so there was this very complex series of messages that went back and forth, and finally a message came. And it had to be, you know, sent and then decoded. And then someone, the Pakistan ambassador in Washington, had to go and see, I think it was Henry Kissinger. And the message finally said the Chinese government will receive a representative of the American government to talk about the possibility of a trip there by President Nixon. And that was the real breakthrough. But it was all done in extreme secrecy, because if it had come out, I think both sides might have been spooked and and the whole thing would have come to a stop.
0: This is Rear Vision, I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're tracing the story of President Richard Nixon's historic trip to China in 1972. The diplomatic dance between China and the United States led to a secret trip to China in 1971 by Henry Kissinger and several other members of his staff, including Winston Lord.
2: We were holding out to make sure that when we got there, whoever went there, we could talk about many issues, including the Soviet Union and Japan and Vietnam and the Middle East, Korea, etc. The Chinese at first wanted to confine the agenda to Taiwan only, which, of course, we refused. So once they agreed to a broader agenda, we felt it was worthwhile to go and see whether a presidential trip was possible. And then we went, of course, in July 71.
0: Can you explain what happened on that
2: trip? We went on a public trip throughout Asia. We stopped in Southeast Asia, India, and Pakistan. And the plan was that once we got there, after a day, Kissinger would get a fake stomach ache and have to go off to a hill country uh, guest house and recuperate for a couple of days. So that was what happened. Meanwhile, we snuck off to the airport, got on the Pakistani president's plane, and flew to Beijing. We were there for 48 hours, and essentially the purpose of this trip was to see whether there was enough common interest, despite our differences, to move ahead with a presidential trip and then to sort of set possible date and announcement of that trip. We had very extensive talks and a whole range of issues between Kissinger and Premier Joe Enlai, and it began to show that this agenda was rich with potential of things to talk about that were positive, like balancing off the Soviet Union. But also difficult issues like Taiwan and Vietnam. So, Kissinger felt there was enough there to go ahead, as did the Chinese, but we still had to figure out how to announce it. So, we had some difficult times in the short time we were there to negotiate a brief communique announcing the visit after we got back. The Chinese wanted the notice to look like Nixon was desperate to get to China and couldn't wait to go and knew he was coming. We, of course, wanted to make it look like the Chinese were anxious to invite. Nixon to come. And so we finally negotiated after some difficulty, sort of a middle ground, which basically said that the Chinese, knowing of Nixon's interest in China, had invited him to come. And a few days later in San Clemente, California, Nixon with the Chinese simultaneously announced the fact that Kissinger had been there and that he was going to go a few months later. The
3: announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Zhou Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Zhou Enlai has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure.
2: Between the secret trip of July 1971 and Nixon's trip In February 1972, there were two more trips, public trips, to set up the trip, both substantively and logistically. So I went back with Kissinger, and we did two things. Publicly, I began to work out where he would visit in China, who he would meet, what kind of cultural activities would take place, what kind of press arrangements, security arrangements. But privately, Kissinger continued extensive talks with Zhou Enlai to begin to set up the talks for Nixon and Mao and Nixon and Joe when Nixon came to China a few months later. And in part of those talks, we also began to negotiate the final communique for the visit. And we made good progress on almost all issues except the toughest one, Taiwan, which we still had to finish off when Nixon went in February 1972.
1: What Nixon did, I think, that was very brave was he got on the plane without knowing whether Mao was going to meet him. The Chinese had been very cagey about this. And of course, for the Americans, a meeting between the American president and the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party was hugely important. What they didn't know, because the Chinese, of course, weren't going to tell him, was Mao was very sick, and he was being treated by doctors, and they were really doing their best to try and get him into shape to meet with the Americans, and they weren't at all sure that he was going to be okay. I mean, by this point, ailing and and was going to die not that long after the trip. Nixon got to China, and so the American Party were taken to the official Chinese guest houses in the northern part of Beijing. And then suddenly, the same day that they'd arrived, word came that Mao could see you now. And Mao apparently, we know, was in good shape that day and also was very eager to see the Americans. I mean, he'd followed the trip into China with with intense interest. And so he sent word that he would like to meet the Americans. This was all unplanned. And so Nixon and Kissinger, leaving behind the Secretary of State, William Rogers, who, who neither of them liked very much, got into limousines and drove off to meet Mao.
0: Those of us waiting outside the great hall of the people in the cold,
2: clear afternoon to see Mr. Nixon arrive, began to wonder if he was seeing Chairman Mao Zedong. And that turned out to be true. The president had slipped away from the guesthouse where he is staying and called on Mao for about an hour. I was very privileged to be a participant in that meeting. When you meet a great historical figure, you tend to say, well this person exudes a certain power and charisma. In the case of Mao, if we didn't know who he was and he was at a cocktail party, we still would have had that feeling. The man, even though he was quite sick at the time, you could just tell he was a powerful leader. And in fact, Joe and Enlai, who was at the meeting, who was so dominant, so charismatic when he conducted his meetings with Kissinger, in Mao's presence was very deferential, almost obsequious. It was a fairly brief meeting because he was sick, about an hour. And when Kissinger and I first came away from the meeting, we were delighted it took place, but a little ambivalent about the substance because Mao kept avoiding real substantive exchanges, sort of directing further talks on this to Nixon talking to Joe and Lai. He himself would only make a few sentences, comments on the issue whether it was Taiwan or the Soviet Union or Japan or Vietnam. But we began to realize that he, in sort of a seemingly casual way, with just a few brushstrokes and a few comments, like calling the Soviets a polar bear, indicating this was an important issue and they were worried about them, or saying that Taiwan could wait 100 years, meaning we could negotiate something on Taiwan that we could live with. He was giving sort of the strategic outlines just in a few sentences, going from subject to subject, leaving it to Joe and Enlai to flesh this out with Nixon and Kissinger over the coming days. So we began to appreciate the style of Mao, which initially sort of threw us off because it was such a contrast to the
1: elegant Mandarin discourses of Joe and Enlai. And there is a picture of them all sitting there. The conversation itself is is pretty banal. Nixon says something about, you know, you're a great leader, and Mao says, well, not really, and you know, they sort of talk a little bit about this and that. So it's not earth-shaking conversation. I mean, they, they don't get down to any really important things, but it's the fact that it took place. The really important conversations were the ones that were going to take place over the next few days between Kissinger and Zhou Enlai when they went at it, trying to hammer out the communique they were going to issue at the end, and just trying to hammer out areas where they might talk more and, and where they might come to some sort of agreement. And so the trip itself, I don't think, made a huge difference in what the Americans, and the Chinese were going to agree on and how they're going to work together. It was the fact that the trip took place that was really so important.
2: As I said, in the October 71 trip, we had worked out most of the communique, and then we still had to negotiate hard during the Nixon trip, on the Taiwan issue, and I should explain the, the communique, was unique, unprecedented, in diplomatic history. When we had gone in October 71 to negotiate one, we gave a draft to the Chinese, sort of conventional, sort of emphasizing the efforts of both sides to have new positive relations, you know, fairly upbeat. In October 71, when we presented that to Joe, Zhou Joe Enlai, he came back the next day and almost literally threw it on the floor. He had obviously been consulting with Mao saying this is a, a bad communique because it suggests we're quite friendly. After all, we've been hostile enemies for 25 years. We fought each other in Korea. And now we're going to suddenly tell the world that we're coming together. Let's try a different approach, he said. Each side will state its position, whether it's on ideology or specific issues like Taiwan, Vietnam, Soviet Union, Japan, et cetera. And each one can put forth what they believe, Then we'll find some areas where we could find agreement, and they will look all the more credible because we had admitted our differences. In this way, we would be able to show the world that we're moving ahead, but we were not naive. We knew the problems. We would not unsettle our allies who might think we'd be selling them out or totally confuse our people switching from total hostility to friendship. So it was a very frank, unusual communique, and that's what we had with us when we went back in 72. But then we still had to negotiate out the Taiwan issue. And we basically solved that by kicking that down the road to the future. The Chinese made major concessions. They allowed us to maintain diplomatic relations with Taiwan, maintain our defense treaty, maintain our troops in Taiwan. We, in turn, had to express in sort of general terms that there was one China, although we didn't define it and we maintain our diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So the Chinese had enough to go forward saying we were beginning to move in their direction, and we could say that we were not selling out our friends.
0: The trip caused political shockwaves across the globe, but didn't immediately lead to the normalisation of relations between the US and China. But according to Joe Renoir, it was the start of China's economic transformation.
3: The bigger story really is that the Chinese leadership began to say, we can unleash the potential of the Chinese people in some way. This is the beginnings of that. This is not the beginnings of the real reforms that would be a few years later under Deng Xiaoping and the new leadership beginning in the late 1970s. But that big geopolitical and global economic story of China's arrival in the world, it meant a rejection of mid-century Maoism. China as a revolutionary state and the beginnings of that i think we can really see that in this period 71 72 73 the big story of china's emergence into the global stage isn't really possible with the isolation that they had in the 1960s and in the early 70s them opening up to a variety of countries i think this is really fundamental to understanding their later development and their economy and education and everything else
1: i think what the opening to china shows is the importance of leadership it wouldn't have happened without the key figures on both sides wanting it to happen. And I think it also shows the importance of diplomacy. We need the diplomats, we need the negotiators. We know we need this in in domestic life. When labor unions are doing negotiations with companies, both sides bring in their best people. And they also keep those negotiations quiet because if you do delicate negotiations in the open, then you'll get all sorts of comment and all sorts of people getting involved and positions will harden. And so I think what the opening to China shows is just the importance of skilled diplomacy over a period of time where both sides learn to trust each other. It doesn't mean that China and the United States were going to become best friends, but I think what the opening between China and the United States meant was they began to get a sense of each other. They began to understand how the other side thought and reacted and might act. And so I do think diplomacy is enormously important. We we tend to downplay the value of diplomats. We think, well, they don't do much. They just sit around and chat. Sitting around and chatting sometimes is very, very important. And over the years, the United States and China have got a much better sense, thanks to the sustained contacts between them, of what drives each society and, and what... The other side might be thinking. So I think the whole trip to China and the subsequent developments show the importance of people in power on both sides saying we're going to do this, but also the real importance of diplomacy and making it possible and building on that opening.
0: Professor Margaret Macmillan, author of Nixon and Mao, the week that changed the world. My other guests, Winston Lord, who was special assistant to Henry Kissinger, and Joe Renoir, resident professor at the Hopkins Nanjing Centre, John Hopkins University. Next week, the economic story behind China's rise to power. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National.